कर Welcome to Writer Mother Monster. I'm your host, Lara Ehrlich, and tonight's guest is Leslie Lear. Before I introduce Leslie, thank you so much for joining us tonight. And as always, if you enjoy the episode and Writer Mother Monster, please consider becoming a patron or patroness to help me keep this podcast going. And now I'm pleased to introduce Leslie. Leslie Lear's new memoir, A Boob's Life, How America's Obsession Shaped Me and You, was in People Magazine's Best New Books, a must-read for Glamour Magazine and Good Morning America, and in Entertainment Tonight's shortlist of books for Women's History Month. Salma Hayek is producing a comedy series based on A Boob's Life for HBO Max, and Leslie's novels include What a Mother Knows, Wife Goes On, 66 Laps, and Welcome to Club Mom. Her essays can be found in the New York Times Modern Love column, the Mommy Wars Anthology, and Ariana Huffington's Unbecoming Fearless. A breast cancer survivor, Leslie works with Stand Up to Cancer. She has two daughters, ages 29 and 32, and she describes writer motherhood as true identity theft. Welcome, Leslie. Thank you. So happy to be here. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks so much for joining me. I'm excited to talk to you and particularly excited to talk about boobs. Yeah. So let's start there. <laughs> I do want to get to identity theft, but I think we'd be remiss if we didn't start with boobs. So Okay. Why boobs? Well, why not boobs? I mean <laughs> I think boobs are something that, that shapes our lives in, in the way we don't even know. I I every morning we get up and we have to do something with it. Right. We have to decide no matter what size they are, put them, hike them up or put them down or wear a bra or not wear a bra in our whole lives. You know, we go through wanting boobs to be like our moms, wanting bras, wanting bigger boobs, littler boobs to be, you know, like all the people on TV and then using our boobs and then the boobs go away and 300,000 people a year get breast implants and about the same number then get breast cancer. And it's this amazing organ that, as you know, as a mom, it's it literally turns blood into milk. That that makes it an organ, and yet there's no medical specialty for it. You know, we have to go to different doctors for different things. Also, humans, we are the only species of mammal who have boobs our entire life, not just when we're using them. And yet we get judged by them all the time, and there's only some that are pretty, and it's just a whole, a whole world. So for me, boobs were just... Well, when I we get to reading the beginning of my book, I'll you know explain exactly why I had to write this book because I just it's like hiding in plain sight. Boobs. Well, it's not hiding in plain sight. I mean, men look at boobs within 200 milliseconds of us walking in a room. It's the most obvious way of you know being a woman. Even people who are are transitioning sexually, the boobs is generally the first thing they get or get rid of. So boobs are are a big deal. <laughs> That's why. Even if they're small, they're a big deal. Absolutely. They're part of our identity, for sure. <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot to unpack there. Um, yeah. I want to start with the emotion of boobs and, like, work our way to, like, the function and motherhood and all of But 
at least for me growing up, there was a lot of emotion around it, like right? Like shame and, like you said, the desire to – um, transition to womanhood and and that comes with with your your body changing but there's also shame bound up in there um and as you mentioned women are judged by their breasts or lack thereof so talk a little bit about the emotion um of breasts well i think we judge ourselves really harshly a lot by the size and shape of our breasts and and we judge other women you know if someone has boobs that are too big we'll think oh she's a slut and, you know, we think smart people are supposed to be kind of flat-chested. And if you have a boob job, it makes you cheap, except for, you know, everyone wants you to have perfect boobs. And the perfect boob is the prepubescent, round, plump, firm thing before we have children. And then, you know, all the mothers out there, we know what happens after that. And it's just it, the emotions, I think, really are a part of what makes women women. And, and it's part of the package of women's beauty. So, of course, there's emotions, and because we live here, we have to live here, we want to feel beautiful, and so, of course, it has a lot to do with how we feel about ourselves and our body, and, you know, I I talk a lot about body positivity, and I think, oh, we're so modern with, you know, Time's Up and Me Too and everything, and yet girls today, you know, with social media, teenager depression, I I mean, it's a huge deal airbrushing our bodies to look a certain way, comparing how we look to other people, and being judged by that and, and judging ourselves and others. So I'm, I'm of the philosophy, you know, love your boobs. You can do whatever you want with them, but it, it's your body. You gotta live in this, this world. But, um, it's just really, I think it, you can't have breasts without having no emotion about them. And in fact, if you say you don't care about boobs, and I know people who are like this, I think you're in denial because the rest of the world cares. Everything you look at has boobs. So it's like saying you don't care about your arm. Because it is a body part, you know. Mm-hmm. I wonder if people mean that they don't think about them, right? Like that they don't they don't consciously consider their breasts. It's just sort of like there, and it's you know. Yeah, I think consciously is the key is the key word there because unconsciously you're always dealing with the breasts. As we saw, you know, every day we wake up, are we going to wear a bra or not? What kind of styles can we wear? And it's really about if it's important enough to spend our time thinking about because the culture does that enough for us. I mean, part of my book, I go through all this, you know, stuff that I went through, but tracing the advertising and the imagery we see in movies and television and even song lyrics and novels and stories, the way we hear and are, are, you know, taught about breasts, it's part of what makes us have this identity that makes us not want to talk about it. I think they're not important, you know, because they are a certain way. And certainly if if all bodies looked alike, we'd have, you know, a lot more equal representation, except for what boobs do as a function also change our roles, obviously, at home, especially during COVID and after and at work. And, you know, it, it has a huge effect on our life, whether we think it matters or not or whether we think we spend time on it. So I think consciously is, is, is a really smart word to use. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about the function a little bit. Um, so something that surprised me about motherhood was how much I learned about my boobs. And, they, like, I just didn't know. I mean, obviously, we know that they produce milk. But I did not know that there were, like, multiple streams. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't. I still don't really know what the science behind all of that. Like, you mentioned they turn blood into milk. And I want to know more about that because I'm like, who is that? Like literal, because surely that must be the maybe that's the case. I actually don't know. 
Well, it's actually not milk. I think we call it milk because it's just white liquid, but it is, and this is the coolest thing in the world, but it's essentially customized immunity-boosting liquid for the child that comes out of your body. I mean, so to have another woman's milk is great because you're also going to get her antibodies or whatever. It, to get cow's milk or formula with all those boosters, that's fine. But it, it was made by our bodies to be the ideal nutrition for the offspring that comes out of our bodies. So, you know, I think then when you get to breastfeeding, it's like clearly the doctors believe that breastfeeding is the healthiest thing. And yet this is such a double-edged coin because on one hand, breastfeeding is not supported uh, either in the workplace or in many hospitals or when we have trouble with it, you know, and on the other hand, Oh, and, and even laws, it's legal to breastfeed now in all 56, but if you show a nipple, you get arrested for a public indecency. You know, on the other hand, if you can't breastfeed, if, if you're in a position, especially women of color, women of other needs, women who are disabled or just simply can't physically breastfeed or they can't leave work to breastfeed or there's no time to breastfeed, there's such shame mm-hmm. from, from other women of, you're not doing the right thing for your baby. And, and man, that is just so unfair. So I think we all need to just kind of lighten up. And, yeah, it's great if we had more support of, for breastfeeding. But if you can't do it, you know, a lot of women have a lot of trouble breastfeeding. I remember my second child, my first child, I got really sick and couldn't breastfeed for long. And so, but I wanted to. I felt like that's what being a mom was. So I actually ran in back then. It was these big Medela machines. It looked like a freaking iron lung. It was a big thing where I used to pedal and, you know. But I was doing that so much to gather milk so I could take medicine that would go through my body to my baby that I was just depleting my body resources and I wasn't getting better. And so I had to stop breastfeeding and put her on formula. Of course, my mom wanted to give her ice cream right away. So then she's not going to want anything healthy. But um, then I just felt horrible. Like, I wasn't a good mom. You know, exponentially – at first, there's colostrum and different kinds of milk that are, you know, after a certain amount of weeks, it's exponentially less helpful. But it's still helpful. My second daughter, man, she was just a hungry girl. And, you know, I would get everybody, I don't want to, you know, get gross out there. I mean, you shouldn't be gross, but all of our, you know, sometimes you can get infections or duct stuff or nipple issues. And, and yeah, it hurts um, to have a little thing getting teeth and gnawing at you. But it is also this blissful feeling when your milk comes down, unless you're, like, in a store or something his mom and, you know, your shirt's wet. But um, she wanted to nurse as long as she could and um, had no problem with it. And then it's like, how do you stop? Are you a bad mom for not wanting to do it anymore? And, you know, there's a whole, there's a big time magazine uh, cover years ago, like, are you mom enough? And it had a picture of a woman with, like, a toddler standing on a high chair nursing her. So, there's a whole lot of judgment around it, and, and I'd like to stop that. Yeah. No, there's so much there in what you what you just so eloquently said. Um, I remember the classes for breastfeeding at the hospital where they say it's the most natural thing, you know, and it's, and so you expect it then to be easy because if it's natural, it must be easy. Right. right. Yes. And there's no support or there is support. You just don't know that it exists yet or that you'll need it. Um, for this thing that's supposed to be natural, so when it's painful and it's it's bloody and blistering, you're like, God, I'm you doing it wrong, like I'm a failure. Yeah. yeah, you're a bad mom. You can't do this. Your body's not doing it. Yeah, come on, and yeah, it's it's horrible. I think women are are we're, we 
I would like to say we're our own worst enemies, but I think the culture at large, you know, moves that on a little bit. So, um, yeah, I, I, I really respect women who can, who can try it. And, and now these women, you know, and there's a lot of TV shows that are funny. You, you see movie stars with like two little, you know, reportable things on her. Um, it's so exhausting, not only to breastfeed, but to deplete yourself of all that, those minerals and whatever. And, um, the women who go to work and do that, it's like they're doing two freaking jobs. I mean, that's a lot. And having it all is doing it all. It's not, you're not, you know, you got nothing left. It's, it's really a tricky situation to try and, and work and be a mom. And, you know, if men could do it, they'd like to be on a throne and become a baby. And that would be great. Yeah, there wouldn't be a question about a, a room, no. like a nursing room at work, right? You'd have like a... That would be their work, too. They would get paid to do that, yeah. you know, which is a whole other issue. But I really think that women at home should get Social Security. You know, it, it's like women are such a disadvantage to be home and take care of the kids when it's most convenient for that. And because of that convenience, you know, they make less money because they have more flexible jobs. And then men make money, then you depend on the men, and then you end up trying to go back to work and where do you fit in, how much money can you make. So, um, you know, which brings us all to child care and COVID. It's like, yeah. it's just a real tricky business. So, so for me, it all starts with the rest and breastfeeding. You know, these, these literally, these breasts of ours can, can provide and nurture life, and then they can kill us. So it's just, <laughs> yeah. you know, boom. Yeah, the full cycle of life and death. And we'll come back to that in a second. We have a question from Tom Harris, though, who who actually was um, commiserating with us. He says that his wife's lactation consultant was a monster and made his wife cry. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Yeah, you know what? Now they have – there's I, – I, you know, when I was doing the book – thanks, Tom – I was, like, doing statistics of how many people are out there for support and stuff. But I remember, you know, the La Leche League, who was the original one, they were like – you have to do it this way, and it was, it's really intimidating, you know? Yes, yes, I had a nurse make me cry. I mean, not a purpose. I got home, and you're all, like, hormonal and everything, and you go home, and you're like, I don't remember what she told me to do, and, like, yeah. it's not working, and it's, like, they're supposed to make a sandwich, but the baby's mouth is too small for the sandwich. But, um... And baby brain, it's like, it's not, it's not like something to make fun of. Seriously, you just produced an entire human being. Of course you have chemicals going on and you're not thinking of everything. And it's really hard. And I, I just feel, if someone makes you cry, you should just get rid of that person. That's just wrong. You know? Exactly. Every part of motherhood is a challenge. And, and to have a guy like uh, Tom who, is caring enough about his wife to say, this isn't fair. I mean, be proactive and, and it's okay to say, Hey, we need to, this is not working. Goodbye. You know, exactly. But then there, you know, it's hard to find someone who can help you. I mean, I remember, I do remember like different ways to try and get the baby to latch on. And, you know, when you're full and your boot is really hard, the baby can't even get a grip around your nipple. <laughs> you know, there's a full hold and the women are trends. Oh my God. So. I know. Yeah, it's it's a tricky thing. I think there needs to be a lot more support around it and a lot less judgment around. Yeah. Uh, I, most women have trouble with it, you know. Yeah, so. absolutely. I totally agree. Um, and Tom has a question which takes us sort of away from the mothering, but maybe in some senses. Well, anyway, we'll we'll get to sex. Tom says, yeah, yeah. We'll go toward from mothering to sex, but I think they're con- they're connected. So Tom says, um. Can you tell me why I derive such comfort from spooning and holding onto my wife's breast? 
it's always amazed me how much safe harbor is transmitted through that uh, gesture. It doesn't feel sexual. It feels essential. So um, I guess we're talking, too, about finding comfort in breasts, right, in a relationship. Well, I think that because of where breasts are located on the body, in front of the heart, in the middle of your arms where we embrace things, I mean, we, everyone hugs people with our chest. You know, I mean, that's the warm love area. And so it makes complete sense. And when he talks about spooning, he's not actually seeing the front of her, right? So that's not like the sexual vision of the nipple uh, exposed, which is the intersection for me of the sacred and the sexy, you know, and, and all the censorship is based on is the nipple showing or not, you know, because it's so it allows them to have that warm feeling. And breasts are generally really warm, too, because they're by the heart. And, you know, it's, I think it's, it's just a lovely, comforting thing. So it's it's uh it's related to all of it, and of course you know sex is how you get pregnant. So you know to come full circle like that is just wonderful. And most men really like seeing their wife's nurse just as much as they like holding a baby. It's just something that lets down those those feel good chemicals about breasts because breasts are incredible. They're just just incredible. They are an organ, but they do something wonderful and they're beautiful. And then they spend our whole lives with us and give us a whole lot of other grief. So I'm glad that they can be comforting to a man and not just, you know, sexual. I mean, that shows a lot of emotional maturity for a man as well. Yeah. I, well, let's talk about men who don't have emotional maturity. Who's the, I guess we do hear, as you said, um, about women being arrested in public for showing their nipples. And it's not just men, of course, who have, you know, who have that prejudice against um, breasts. But can we talk a little bit about the sexualization of breasts? And as you said, the, the change that occurs after motherhood, after you stop breastfeeding, when your breasts change shape and and, and that impact maybe on um, a woman's feeling of her sexual worth. That's definitely uh, two sides, again, of the same subject, because I think there's a lot of personal shame and guilt about how our body morphs and that we no longer are sexually attracted because our culture and especially in America, which I discovered during research for this book, really idealizes this young, firm breast. And it really was caused, I mean, the reason I wrote this book is because I realized that, well, a lot of reasons, but it was so incredibly ironic that my life completely parallels the rise of all the things in our culture that made America uniquely obsessed with breasts and in a sexual way. I was born in the, when, I mean, after, before me, after World War II, during World War II, you might not know this, but they actually, there were child care centers. Uncle Sam had subsidized child care centers because the men were at war and a lot of the women had to, you know, buckle up and go to the factories and get to work. So when the men came back, even if they were maimed or half of them dead, in fact, more women were working forever than ever, but the women had to go back. So they closed all the child care centers and all the pinup women and the new bras that had been invented, the colon bras, like on the cover of my book, um, to make women look, you know, sexy and great and make the men want to come home to their American bombshell women, right? I mean, they're shaped by bombshells, so that, that's where that expression came from. I did not know that. Sorry. Yeah. Sidebar. That's really cool. And so they... Um, they came home. Women were encouraged to be in the be- in the the bedrooms, and we've all seen Mad Men, right? TV went overnight into every home for the first time in the late fifties and in the sixties. 
homes have TVs. So there were women in your home. And advertisers know that a man will look at a woman's breast within 200 milliseconds of her entering the room. I mean, that's just a weird scientific fact. Because men are attracted for biology. They want to mate. It's, it's, it's an instinct we cannot fight. But the culture took advantage. So the advertisers, of course, would put women with large breasts on TV. So all these little, the shows I grew up with, Green Acres and Hooterville and, you know, Beverly Hillbillies, these women, the attractive ones, were young and had good boobs. That sold products. So advertising was big. At the same time, there was technology. Baby formula was invented. My mom was encouraged to use baby formula because it was better for your baby than breast milk. That was like declassé and lower class. And, you know, you were supposed to use the modern scientific stuff. And then there was this guy named Hugh Hefner, whose, whose fiancé slept with somebody else while they were engaged. And he had grown up Puritan. And so his parents, like, you know, they came from that background of not hugging, no intimacy. And he married her, but he was pissed. And so he is in take, he decided to take it out on everybody, create the Playboy man, right? And, and show women with beautiful breasts. And then this was a magazine that was actually in my dad's university, in the library for public. This is what women are supposed to look like, right? And so that became the Playboy man. So the combination of that, of Playboy and um, modern science and advertising and, and the rise of television like created this perfect storm of big booze being a big deal. Suddenly actresses, who, which would have been porn, but now actresses needed to be in Playboy to be beautiful, right? And the cartoons all had busty women. And then um, by 1982, there were the FDA, like the American Society of Plastic Surgeons convinced the FDA that small breasts were disease. I mean, and which opened up insurance to cover Breast augmentation, I mean, it wasn't until recently that that insurance would cover breasts, you know, making breasts smaller, because who would want that? Who cares about women who see back, backs hurt and all that kind of stuff? Anyway, it created this culture of then women had to be topless in movies, and it was just all about the breasts being beautiful and being shapely, and then breast implants and push-up bras and training bras were invented very shortly before I was a little girl. It's like, well, I was dying to get that stretchy little white bra. Where are they training? I don't know. You know, so... It was just this this incredible thing that made Americans and advertising and movies and everything in the world that we saw every day, breasts were supposed to be beautiful. And so then we use them. We get a man, right? And I did the same thing. You know, want to be sexy, show our cleavage, get a man. And then you then when I had got pregnant, oh, my God, I finally had the breast I always wanted. I mean, I grew up in Ohio. It's cheerleaders, you know, it's prom queens and the curvy girls were really popular unless they were too curvy and then, you know, they were, they got, then they could attract the older boys and then it was left. So it's this whole thing. But then you, I got huge for breastfeeding and then milk's gone, you know, empty sacks. That's kind of how it works. And so then even my mom called me deformed. I mean, it was like, they didn't look like regular breasts anymore. She was like, you should get a breast implant. And, you know, it's, it's because, she wanted me to be beautiful. She wanted me to feel good about myself. Our culture teaches us this. And so it down on the other side, women feel bad about the rest. And honestly, you know, before COVID, it was still the most popular elective surgery was breast implants. And, for, you know, like I said before, 300,000 women a year get elective. And I'm not count, count, talking about women being reconstructed after cancer, but the amount of women who spend so much trouble trying to get reconstructed and be perfect this way and that way, you know, and feel bad about themselves. It's huge. So much time and money goes into remaking our breasts to look like they're young. 
And I'm not immune to this. I'm part of this culture, right? I, I grew up here. But um, it's it's a big deal, and it reflects it reflects poorly because you're not sexy unless you have a certain kind of thing. But then if you show the nipple, then it's about sex. You know, it's like that's too much. So that's where the whole censorship goes in and free the nipple and go topless.com. And, you know, because women should be able to be like men and have these rights, and yet men are going to look at your breasts and who, you know, it's not always to a woman's advantage to be seen that way. So it's it's really (laughs) (laughs) No, there's a, yes, there's a lot. Um, And Victoria's Secret, I mean, these are the women who make the most money, these models. I mean, they fought over diamond bras, right? They were crowns for your breasts. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. When you look at the statistics, and in my book, it's like, I just go through all this funny stuff that I wrote about. Oh, my God, and then this happened, and then I were already dressed, and my boots almost popped out, and, you know, all this stuff. And then, oh, I have girls, and one wanted dress. It's like, what do you do? But then I put together these facts in between the chapters, because if you look at the history of what happened, it's it's just mind-boggling, the, the pattern of how things changed and that breast became really popular. They were really big, and they were very valuable. I mean, even on Broadway, women who went topless made more money. You know, on TV, Sophia Vergara was the highest paid woman for many years. And I, I know she's a great actor, but she has other assets as well. So, anyway. <laughs> no, it's true. I love that your book is both personal and very meticulously researched. Um, can you talk a little bit about, let's talk about writing the book. Let's get to, like, your, the logistics of your craft. And well, since we're mothers, I who write, yeah, it's a tricky thing. Well, I honestly, I'm not sure I would be a writer if I wasn't a mother because, um, yeah, I was in film production. Um, I always wrote, grew up in Ohio, but came out to, you know, for the movie business. I always wrote, but mostly to events. And once I was kind of stuck at home because my husband at the time and I were both in the movie business, we couldn't both be out of town all the time. I had the baby. And so, of course, I'm stuck at home. And so... Um, I thought, oh, I'll just write more. But I was just so frustrated. My dad would call and say, well, what do you do all day? Because he expected me to be this big career woman. And I'm like, you don't want to know what I do all day, you know, with this a new mom. I was clueless. I think all moms are. We don't, we don't even know. In fact, I just started writing these little things to vent because I was pissed and upset. And I didn't know who I was. And so I wrote these essays and I combined it into this book called uh, Welcome to Club Mom, The End of Life as You Know It. And I ended up selling it, but the publisher changed the subtitle. They thought that was too dark. And they changed the subtitle to The Adventure Begins. And so I ended up writing one of my first novel, 66 Laps, that won this big prize. It was really about a young mom at home. Didn't know who she was. Thinks her husband's having an affair. You know, all hell breaks loose. My second novel, uh, Wife Goes On, was about a woman getting a divorce who, like, really is all about... I don't want to get a divorce, but I don't want, I want to be a good role model for my kids, but, the, and it's a comedy about women who are friends, but they're all moms, because it's just a whole other challenge and identity. My last book, um, What a Mother Knows, that wasn't my original title, and when I heard it, it was like, mothers know nothing. You know nothing. You think you know everything until your kids are teenagers, and you know nothing. Um, and, uh, it was really about one of my daughters was crying at night, and I didn't know what to do, and I thought, what would I do? What's the worst that could happen, and what would I do? It's like, you know, it's this murder mystery, essentially, kind of a thriller of this mom who wakes up after an accident and her 
kids, her daughter's missing and she's being blamed for murder. And it's like, you know, what would you do? You go to the ends of the earth and still my kids are grown and, and, but there's still so much that the angst and what I will do to help them and save them and keep them alive is it's this visceral thing. And so it gave me, um, then I was like afraid to go back to work. So I thought I'd never see them again, you know, because the film production hours are long. There was not childcare. And, you know, that's another thing. Childcare, we don't have, it's not like we can choose really whether to have kids or, or not because we have, though we have childcare. It's like we want to have kids and got to figure out how to make it work. And it's a really a big financial issue in our country. We're like bottom of the list of, of all that, that leave. But for me, I, my writing was really a lot about complaining about being a mom and <laughs> exploring who am I now that I'm a mom and how can I do this? And this book was really no different. It was, um, I had, had breast cancer and about, I was after chemo, so five years later and it was, uh, that one time my brain hadn't really come back and I was desperate to write another book and I was easy. I was working with clients. I'm a writing consultant for Trudy's Writer Studio and for, you know, independently. And, um, I'm very analytical. I'm very structure oriented so I can help people. And that side was great, but that bubble up thing was not happening. And, um, I just, one night and you'll see when I read, I, I, I just was like so pissed about my breasts being ugly, <laughs> you know, I, I was like, do I fix them again? I don't know. And so I kind of wrote as a mom, you know, the woman who's like, well, why am I obsessed with this? And I really, I wanted to find out. And so I actually thought it would kind of be like a bunch of essays, but then it turned out to be this journey that after it was hard to sell because it was this mix of memoir. And then I had to do the research too, because I had to see where I was in my life and what was really going on to make me feel that way and get here. And so it was this unique combination. And then history went on and politics went on and it became this breast became this much bigger trigger point with me, even through black lives matter and times up and me too. It's like, you know, really about equality for everyone every size, shape, color of boobs, you know, to have every opportunity in the world. So it, it did start like venting, like all of my writing and with my worst concerns about being a mom. And, and you said before, it's an identity thing. It's like, I was shocked. I thought I knew who I was and then your mom and, and it's just a whole other thing. And it really doesn't go away. All you people with young kids out there and you Laura with your lovely five year old, it's like, you think you got 13 more years. You are. You're committed for life. You're a mom. You know? So, and it's hard to break away from that. And also our culture makes it hard, makes it like that's our whole work. You know, taking care. And it's too much responsibility. We need, we need help. Because otherwise we're going to get sick too. And then we go down, the whole ship goes down. So, and it all obviously connects or I'd be able to shut up a lot sooner. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, it's so true. Um, yeah, and I loved your three words, identity theft. It was what, what exactly true identity theft yeah. yeah because a lot of women on the show myself included have talked about that being one of the biggest fears for writer moms or maybe for moms generally is that fear that once you become a mom that becomes your identity right as you said and or that's the expectation that you're um groomed to have for yourself is that you will become mom with a capital m and that's it and so how do you kind of balance all of the parts of yourself or prioritize other parts of yourself? Yeah. Um, it's very yeah. tricky. And everyone has to kind of shape our own way and figure out how to do it the way we 
are comfortable to do it and the way we're able to do it with time and money and family support or lack of it, it's really a tricky business. Yeah, yeah. And you're talking, so I'm really interested and we'll get to the, the beginning of the book because I also want to hear you read, but um, tell me a little bit more about writing and producing and mothering um, and just now the intersection there because Salma Hayek, as we know from the introduction, is um, turning this book into a show for HBO, right? So yeah. can you tell us anything about that? Uh, sure. I think the surprising thing is because... Um, you know, the book has two chapters of 19 about breast cancer. So there's some kind of dark stuff, mainly because I want women to take care of yourself. Stress is totally related to getting sick. Um, and it's a comedy series, and my breasts are going to talk. And so, yeah, they're going to be like my alter ego of, you know, really, you know, the judgment. So um, it's in development, and... It's a really, it's like, I used to think that the only thing that takes longer than making a baby is making a book, but I think TV shows take longer. (laughs) And now with COVID, there's so many things in the final, so I don't know when it's going to happen, but it's very exciting. I mean, she, I actually talked on the phone with her, and she said she was obsessed with this book, and Salma Hayek is like this genius producer. You don't even know how many TV shows she has on and in the Spanish language market and movies like Frida and TV shows like Ugly Betty. And she and Dolly Parton, they use their boobs for good. They know how to get the attention, you know, and then they use that attention to be powerful women. And, you know, Dolly, who helped with the the Pfizer shot, I think it was, or Moderna, one of them. It's like these women, they know what they're doing. They know the weaknesses in our culture. They're going to use it. And um, so I'm, I cannot be more thrilled. It's very exciting. So I, whenever I see pictures of her showing her, I'm like, okay, I know what you're doing there. <laughs> that is amazing. Okay, wait. Let's. I, now we have to dig in a little bit to okay. Boobs with Power because I yeah. love the way that you just framed that as they know what they're doing. They yeah. use the weaknesses of our culture to <laughs> essentially put their boobs out there and then yeah. rule the world. So what are they doing? How How does this work? Well, if you look on Instagram, Sama has the most boobalicious Instagram you will ever see, right? And Dolly Parton, uh, she, I don't know if she did it, but she, last year, it's in, it, I talk about it in the book because she has posted in Playboy before and she wanted to do it again on a big birthday. Maybe it was the 70th birthday, something like that. And I think COVID changed plans because Playboy went off being a print and it's online and, you know, now people can see boobs online all the time. But she was very excited to show it show her body back in that bunny outfit that she did years ago when you had to do it because she's proud of how her body looks. She definitely, you know, has talked about her breast being, uh, well, large, <laughs> you know, yeah. and it's, it's part of the, with that tiny waist, it's really accentuated. And she knows that it's part of what makes her who she is. I mean, the wigs, the costumes, it's all part of the persona, you know, and same thing with Selma. It's like there are millions of people who follow these women. Uh, I mean, Dolly obviously is an incredible songwriter and musician, and she wrote, you know, some of her songs she wrote in like 30 minutes, and she owns them. She's a really smart businesswoman. But then there's, you know, Selma, who is producing all these things. She has her own production company, Batana Rosa. She's you know, well married and but works so hard. She she just and she's very smart, uh, completely self-supporting and 
works with these companies and has, has, you know, offices all over the world. And she, I mean, I heard from the, my producer who like works with her producers. It's all when they have to be family, I guess. And she said that there was some talk about, you know, when they were starting to work on the pilot and, and some, when they got her on the phone, she actually insisted on getting on phone at like in Dubai, at like three in the morning to say, give her opinion about some element of our project. It's like she is on it. So all the movies she does, you know, she she likes to act, obviously, and she's doing a lot of real serious stuff behind the scenes. So that's what I mean by power. And I think, like, even, you know, um, women who use their breasts to make more money, they're doing that, too. They're, you know, and women who hide them because, like I did, you know, I wore big coats and didn't show that I was a girl because I was trying to do a man's job and it didn't really help me make more money. But, you know, then women like in the Oscars or, you know, award shows, they show their breasts and they're proud. And then, and I have some really fun scenes in the book of like watching the Oscars with my mom and the other one. And, um, it's, it's tricky. It's like, is it empowering to show your body or is it exploitative? Cause then you get to girls gone wild and all those guys got sued for using drunken coeds versus through the nipple where women are doing the same thing. And, and my question is, it's really, it's really taking your own power and being in charge of it and controlling how you present your body because you're going to get viewers either way yeah. and you're going to get judged. And so we just have to be much more powerful in our own rights to kind of own it. Probably want one of us to be. And as mothers, what are you going to teach your daughter? I mean, I, I was talking to, and it's in the book. I belong to this big leadership thing. And there was a woman who was a high exec in the playboy thing. And I had a real long talk with her. She thought, oh, no, it's just a brand. This is a job. And then I found out she had a little girl. And I was like, so what are you going to do? You know, and the answer was really interesting. But you have a lot of choices to make with your daughters. How are you going to make your daughter, you know, how are you going to make her proud? How are you going to make her feel beautiful? And just the way the clothes she wears. And if she, you know, I mean, how short can her shorts be? It's like, you know, when when is she going to want a bra? Are you going to? It's there's a lot of a lot of things that are involved, and I, I wish I hope that all those mothers, all you mothers who have sons, are teaching them to go beyond the biological instinct to really appreciate the full woman, no matter what her bodies are. And, and yet it's a challenge because we live here. So um, God bless you all. <laughs> you know, I mean, do what we can. We have to. We have to just really own it. And for me, awareness is the key. It's like we can't change biology, but if we can be aware of how the culture treats us because of because of how we are as mothers, because of what we need to do as mothers, because of what they're making us do as mothers, and because of our breasts, which are the unicenter of so much, you know. Yeah, and I'm really glad you brought that up. No, I was actually going to ask you that same question because it's something my husband and I talk about a lot with a five-year-old, and we, we don't have to – do much about it yet you yeah. know because she's still like but she's uh, just about to go into kindergarten so she's going to kindergarten exactly yeah. but I was very uncomfortable as a teen and I you know kid myself and was very much my sister told me I dressed like a camp counselor which always made me feel sort of um if she's listening I still think about that but you know, how do you how do you encourage a girl to both be confident and feel good about her body, but then also respectful of her body and and aware of the perceptions of others and yet not 
too concerned about what others think. So, yeah, the balance there is something that I'm very aware of having been like a 13 year old daughter. And yeah, well, I think I will have one at some point. Of course. (laughs) Let's hope. Um, And I think that there's a lot that can be said for boundaries of both privacy and safety. And yet the subjective part goes, Laura, when you make a decision of when are you going to make your daughter cover her nipples in the bathing suit. So sometimes it's up to where you go, and sometimes it's up to, you know, how you feel about it and how comfortable she is and if she starts getting publicly shamed or ridiculed and, and how she handles that. I mean, there's um, – I think for me in the book, I my favorite picture – let's see if I can – Show this. Okay, when I the night the night that I decided to read the book, I had just moved, and I took a picture out of my box, my top box, my favorite picture, and I'll show you the picture. I can see this. See that picture on top? Oh yeah, yeah. Me, I'm I'm. That's my sister right there, and that's my mom in the middle, and I'm the one on the other side. And when I look at that picture, I just automatically crack up. Because those skinny little red strips were supposed to cover your nipple. And my sister, who was one and a half, could not do it. And I knew at three that it was like brushing your teeth. You had to cover your nipples. It was a rule. And I still, I look at that picture and I think, oh, I wonder, I, I can't, I need a magnet. Is she covering her nipples? She's supposed to have her nipples covered. I mean, it cracks me up. And I remember looking at that picture that night and thinking, man, if that's how early I knew how Nipples were taboo. I mean, it gives me goosebumps just thinking of how the culture has made me feel that way. And so I think that if if we can just be, you know, not shame our daughters and let them be free as long as they can until wherever they really want to go, if there's a rule there, then we have to abide by the rules, but try to encourage them to be proud of themselves. And yet there is a risk of, you know, of not only – valuing the privacy of their body, which they own, and they should have agency over protecting as much as they want, you know, in terms of consent, that will happen later, but um, also to protect their, their themselves from prying eyes and people who are either dangerous or more judgmental. So it's, it's tricky business, for sure. Yeah, and I love that you said, essentially, that it's, or maybe you didn't quite say this, but I interpreted it this way, that it's good to preempt the public shaming that could happen if if you aren't sort of aware of of the impact, right? So, like, I, my sort of biggest concern is that my daughter might get old enough where someone is teasing her about her nipples or her need for a bra, and I haven't sort of preempted that need, and so then she is ridiculed. And has to come to me and say, I'm being teased. I need to, you know. Well, you, you just, I mean, uh, for me, the key is always keeping the line of communication open. Even mm-hmm. as my daughters are older, it's like, even if they're going through something I don't approve of or I'm scared about, it's like the key is to keep the communication open so that when they need you, they can talk to you. And when they're little, same thing. You don't want to be harsh on them and so that they're afraid to talk to you. And with little girls, you don't know who on the playground is going to tell them what first, right? Yeah. And I, mean, I remember, yeah, and I remember how, um, you know, boys would like snap your bra straps, or if you didn't have one, that was worse. Exactly. Then, you know, yeah. so, 
yeah, fourth grade, and then you start developing, and you, you need to wear a T-shirt so it's comfortable, but also so it doesn't show, and that's when, you know, your parents' friends start treating you differently, and, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, it's a scary thing. So it's, all, it's really all about communication and being close enough to your kids so you can talk whenever it comes up or, or point things out as you see them. You know, I don't think there's – my kids always got scared, and I think – I mean, my husband, people get scared when you say, we have to talk, right? So if you're just kind of always having a conversation, as you know, with little ones in your car is a great way to talk, you know, and yeah. oh, look at that. Oh, look at that. Or lyrics to a song or, you know, in the picture book because things still are a little, little, little wonky sometimes. So I think just being observant will help them be observant also. And, and I remember that movie, I think it was The Help, where the woman was telling the daughter, the girl she had to take care of, you are beautiful, you are powerful, you are whatever it was, that mantra. I wish, I remember seeing that movie and thinking, man, I tried to be a good role model for my girls. I tried to teach them everything, and yet, yet peer pressure is huge. Their own emotional, mental health, and physical, everything is different. And so you don't have control of all that. But I kept thinking, if only I had this mantra I had told them, what could I say to always know you are beautiful, you are, you know. And I think my sisters, her, her daughter's really younger than mine. We're just a family one. Um, and they're very confident in their bodies and, and every, nobody's necessarily looks like, you know, the load models, you know, it's everyone is, they're really proud of who they are all the time. And I think that that is something that women, mothers and fathers can do, not in a sexual way, but just like, Hey, you're beautiful. Hey, beautiful. How are you doing? You know? And unfortunately beauty is, I wish you didn't have to say you're beautiful. Could you say you're really smart? But, you know, obviously, smart is a huge value, and in our culture, so is beauty. The beauty inside and out, it's not a cliche. It's something that we need to work to, to enforce because it affects everything. It affects how we're treated in the workplace. It affects our opportunities, our pay. You know, it, it really is part of our culture. And it's part of every culture, but America, the, the you know, Hollywood, we affect everyone. So it's, it's especially important here. Yeah. Tell me about your daughters and what have they read your books? Uh, <laughs> oh, I just noticed your mug. Move my lipstick. It says, "Love you, babes." That's kind of my. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> are those are those for sale somewhere? Well, um, there are not for sale, but I can certainly send you one. And if you have someone who calls in and uh, would like one, you can pick someone, and I'll send one out as a gift. You know, I, when the book's been out a couple of months and I was doing a lot of book clubs and, and it was a prize and stuff, but I'd be happy to, to send you one and to also send a, a listener who's interested. You can, you can ask a question and see who wins or however you want to do that. Yeah, let's do that. I've got some swag. I'll send you some swag in return. Okay. We'll do a, a listener giveaway. Okay, good. Um, well, you're asking, my daughter's going to read the book. Um, my, there is, there are some things in the book, like for instance, one of my daughters was really keen on getting a boob job for a while. She had been an all-star athlete and got really injured and then her whole identity was changed. And, and then I have another daughter who I was dropping off at college and she just, I was like, oh, do you need a new bra? You know, and we were talking about, she loved Game of Thrones and the first two seasons, it was all the women in the background, you know, sex, having sex while someone would talk and they started calling it, uh, sex exploitation or sex position. Because exposition is information, and they were just <laughs> and I always think, well, if my kids were actresses, which you're not, and I still do this. You see someone on TV, and the the girls talk to her there. I'm always thinking, look, why my mom on TV? You know, it's like, is it worth it? Is that okay? Does it not matter? You know, 
But um, so I definitely ran certain things by them. And also in the book later on, for example, my their dad uh, died by suicide a couple years ago. So there are some little I mean, it's just happened like while I was writing the last chapter. And yet I realized that there's also some stuff about domestic abuse and things are breaths, you know, being women get us into by how our bodies are seen. And so I realized it kind of was related in a way of how women and men's roles are. And he had been uh, a vet and all this stuff. But um, it's just a tiny little piece, but I had to mention it because it dovetailed into the last chapter. And so I ran that by my older daughter, who um, is much more uh, is, is the red readers. But she's actually a, copy, a copywriter at Adobe. So she's like in the words. She figured out how to do it. And she um, I ran certain parts by her. My other daughter, I think, was avoiding it a little bit. I mean, I've written, this is my seventh book, and my kids are, like, refuse to let me read anything they wrote. You know how people mm-hmm. always say, oh, they're helicopter parents, they're doing your homework. Well, my kids, because I'm a writer, I think maybe they were afraid of my judgment, and also I was a single mom for a while. I think they were just didn't want me to be editing their stuff or to have any opinion. So they're very wary. Also, my first book, A Baby Dies, and my older daughter thinks I killed her. So there she like, doesn't want to read any of my books. You know, the next book was a comedy, and this one definitely has both. But um, I'm pretty sure she's read it because she'll say something, but she wouldn't come right out and say, oh, gosh, I loved your book. She's totally happy for me. Her, her friends and work associates are excited and thrilled and recommending the book all the time. But she kind of plays it, you know, on the down low. And my other one, too, it's like, actually, my other one um, – while I was writing it, I gave, I told her, I'm going to talk about this, and I'm going to talk about this, and do you want to change your name? And she said, yeah. So she's, one of them has a fake name. And, you know, I, I have to respect their privacy. Well, I think, as you know, writing, Laura, it's, even in writing a memoir, it's like your, if your life is a house, a memoir is one room in the house. We're just, we just happen to be in my closet, in my lingerie bag. You know, this is, this is about my booze. And for me, boobs really covered a lot of my life. But they don't necessarily go into other family members' lives in any way that doesn't relate to women's roles and um, history or feminism or breastfeeding. You know, anything that relates to to breasts, I will talk to them about it. But otherwise, it's just a, this is the story I needed to write because it's not out there. Nobody talks about this. It's like Vogue can say, oh, boobs are in this year, or they're out. And it's like... They're on our bodies, you know, <laughs> to maybe a fashion accessory. So, um, so I honestly couldn't tell you 100% that both of them have read it, but I sure wrote it hoping they would, <laughs> you know. So, well, speaking of reading it, um, let's, <laughs> I'm going to try to, um, solo you on the screen, which I haven't been able to do yet. I, that's why I need a producer here. So if you know somebody, so I'm going to try to solo you and, um, I'd love to hear a little bit of the book. Okay. I'm I'll try pages. I'm just going to read the very top of the book, which um, is exactly how it happened, and this is why it was so crazy. Please so, do. Yeah. It starts in uh, 2015, and the first chapter is called Obsession. My nipples are cross-eyed. I see it clearly in the bathroom mirror the moment I step out of the shower. As steam clouds the view, I wave my towel and pray it was an optical illusion. No, they're definitely pointing in different directions, as if embarrassed to meet my eyes. Or maybe this is payback. The truth is, my breasts have been loathed and loved, suckled and stuffed, 
radiated and reconstructed. They have doomed one marriage and inspired another. Yet every step of the way, they've had the finest treatment in America. By now, they should be perfect. Hun, my husband John, calls from the bedroom. What's taking so long? Since we married a few years ago, both of his parents passed away, and then I got cancer. This is the first home we bought together. A condo with an ocean view we'll enjoy for a few years as a reward for all we've been through. The 99-step climb is like a stairway to heaven, but I didn't have to die to get here. This is our first night to relax and renew our romance. I try. First, I dab perfume behind my ears and unclip my damp chemo curls. Then I take a deep breath and look again. If I raise up my right shoulder and arch my back just so, my breasts are lush and round and almost even, but there's no ignoring the truth. I pull a cotton nightgown over my head as fast as I can. Then I shove my towel so hard into the plastic hamper that the piece of crap falls over. My husband tears his eyes from the TV as I stomp into the bedroom. You okay? I snatch my phone from the cardboard moving box by the bed. I have to call my doctor. Now, he asks, over the swell of applause for the late show. Are you in pain? Yes, I want to say. Psychic pain. Then I realize the doctor's answering service won't consider that an emergency. When I shake my head, my husband smiles and pats the bed beside him. I surrender the phone and scooch over. He rubs my leg and, and glances back at the TV, where the host is mid-monologue. I start to relax. Then, the host, David Letterman, tells a boob joke about J-Lo. The TV audience roars. I turn to my husband, to who his credit is not laughing. This guy gets paid millions of dollars. It's the end of his reign on television, and that's the best he can do. J-Lo is the producer of a successful TV show. He shrugs. Comedians have always made boob jokes. Exactly, I said. It's not original. Why are they laughing? There's a neon sign that flashes the word laugh? No, they're really laughing. I bet half the people in that audience are women, and they're laughing too. Boob jokes are funny. But why, I ask. Every woman in the world has boobs. That's why, he says. They're the first female body part a man sees when a woman walks into a room. The laughter dies down. The comedian is talking, but I don't care. I hate him. What makes a boob funny? Boobs just sit there, all round and funny looking. Dicks just sit there too, I say, and they're far more funny looking. Why aren't there more dick jokes? Dick jokes are insulting. All jokes are insulting. They make fun of something. Isn't that how humor works? Isn't that how the word sounds? I mean, no one says breast jokes. Breasts are beautiful. Everyone knows that. When you call them boobs, it's funny. But boob means stupid. How can the organ that turns blood into milk for babies be stupid? Lighten up, hun. He winces as if I've been shouting. I just don't understand why people always laugh at boob jokes. They're not funny. Why are you being so sensitive, he asks. I don't answer, on the grounds that it might incriminate me. I remove his hand from my thigh. He raises his eyebrows. I take a deep breath and try to let it go. But I feel like punching somebody, and he's the only one here. So much for romance. So that's the beginning of the book. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. That was wonderful. Ah, that was quite a night. <laughs> Why did you start there? 
Not in the reading, but in the book. Um, because that's really how it started. I mean, I was up the rest of the night going, uh, is this just me? Am I crazy? Am I obs- he accused me of being obsessed? And I thought, I'm a feminist. I'm not obsessed. I just have moves, you know? And I went in the other room. I had my computer set up at all the boxes. And I started Googling, is there a book on this? Is there somebody? Can I ask somebody? And I Googled breasts, and I found um, breastfeeding and breast cancer and a whole lot of breast chicken recipes. And, uh, yeah, so I thought, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll Google boobs, and it was all porn. And nobody had really connected the two, you know. So I thought, okay, i got to find this out, partly, as I said, because I wanted to know, am I going to fix my boobs again? I had been through so much you know, with breast cancer, I finally thought I was whole and sexy again. And then to get out of the shower and have them, like, they weren't quite right. So it was really for my own self. And it, I just, I had to write the book. So that's how it started. <laughs> and it is a fabulous and very necessary book. Thank you. Yes. And anyone who is um, listening later to the podcast, please um Take a look. We'll put the cover of the book on Instagram. Um, we'll put the picture, if Leslie will share it with us, of herself in the bathing suit, that picture from the book there. on Instagram so you can see, and the and the mug that we'll do a giveaway of. Right. So, um, yeah, or you can just watch the episode and see it all. <laughs> yeah. No, thank you so much. It's, it, it was just, I just had to write it, and it was the kind of thing where at first, as a writer, as you know, sometimes you don't know why you're writing something, and but it's just one of those things for me. I, I'm not a person who writes a book every year. I have to books take a long time and I have to really, I just really had to write this book. And so hopefully, and now they're, you know, it's obviously getting a lot of good. I mean, it, it filled the need and, and it's entertaining and I'm really excited about it. So thank you so much for inviting me on to talk about it. And I'm excited. I've been listening to your other podcasts. It's been fabulous. You're doing a service. I do want to ask you one question though. Yeah. Monster. Why monster? Well, because I think there's so many elements of womanhood and motherhood that are considered monstrous, right? Like, is it a scary thing or is it a powerful thing? Oh, totally powerful. Okay. I think taking the scary things or the shameful things or the monstrous things and turning them into empowering things, right? Like, what's more monstrous than turning blood into milk in (laughs) in the organ? Of your body, right? Like that's sort of like a Frankensteinian, Frankensteinian, whatever um, situation. So I think it's just that type of um, shift in thinking that I intend with the monster part of writer mother monster. I love it. Yeah, let's embrace the monstrous. Let's <laughs> and the boobs. So much. So much. It's been just a really thank you. Thank you, Leslie. It's been a pleasure. Stick around for a second so I can say goodbye after um, we come off the air. But um, thank you again for joining us. And I can't wait. Keep us updated, too, on the on the show so we can All watch right. your boobs have a conversation. <laughs> Bye. And thank you all so much for joining us as well. This has been really fun. And if you have enjoyed the conversation as much as I have, and I really have, please consider becoming a patron or patroness of Writer Mother Monster. Um, you can find the information on the website, www.writermothermonster.com. And we will um, follow up also on that giveaway. And we also have plenty of Writer Mother Monster stuff that I can give away online as well. So more to come on that. Thank you again, and I'll see you next week.